We are delighted to have you here with us this morning at Oak Ridge as we continue in this series that Paul writes, to this uh, epistle, this letter to a number of churches in the region of Galatia. He wants them to understand what the gospel is, that the good news means that our God loves us so intensely that he extends to us his grace, his goodness, his presence, just who he is, and that he wants to restore us to peace, to connection with him, to this sense of shalom where everything is right with the world. And God does this through Jesus, not because of us or because of what we do. Paul will have to defend himself against those who are wondering about his ministry and say, I have the right to preach what I am preaching. And we can kind of see what it means to be a person who God desires to use, namely that he would use anybody fully surrendered to him and his purposes. Last week, we talked about how it is that we can be made right with God apart from the law. If you have a Bible with you in your hands, whether it's a paper Bible or a digital Bible, maybe you need to borrow the Bible and the chairs in front of you. I'd invite you to get out your Bible and just lift it up nice and high. Say, I got my Bible, PJ. I'm glad you got your Bible. And if you could turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, that's where we'll pick up in just a couple of moments. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Whenever human beings are presented with two options in life, and one of them seems to so obviously be the simpler way, why is it that we as human beings seem to always choose the harder road? Personally, I know that I definitely do this, and I can remember so many instances as I was thinking back this week. One of them that came to mind was when I was a young teenager. And I remember that I so desperately wanted to get the attention of a girl. And I had the opportunity a number of times to attend middle school dances during the years that I was in middle school. And the pinnacle of emotional fulfillment for me at that time would have been to get an attractive girl to desire to slow dance with her arms around me. Now, I don't know if this experience resonates with you at all or not, but in our middle school, the dances were held in the lunchroom. And so what they would do is clear all of the tables and chairs out, and the longer walls in the lunchroom, they would put rows of chairs facing one another across the middle of the floor. And suddenly, our public middle school became like an old Quaker church, and all of the boys went to one side, and all of the girls went to the other side, and we sat there awkwardly looking at one another. And inevitably, at some point during the dance, a slow song would come on, and your heart would start to race a little bit, and you'd been pointing out who all of the attractive girls that you would like to dance with on the other side were. Now here's the easy road as a young middle school boy. The easiest road is to get your butt up out of the chair, to walk across the dance floor, to go to one of those young girls and say, would you like to dance? But as a socially awkward middle school boy, that felt a lot like crossing no man's land during World War I. There was a battlefield to get across, and that felt dangerous and scary territory. And so what we would do is sit in our chairs and try to send little telepathic signals over to the girl's side to say, we're available if you would be brave enough to come over. 
Now, I've got to admit, girls tend to be braver than boys. So every once in a while, that somehow seemed to work. But there were a number of times where my anxiety-laden telepathy failed, and I sat there listening to a ballad with a bunch of other guys too afraid to put themselves out there and ask a girl to dance. Why do we do this in life? When we are presented with an easier option, for some reason we take the hard road. Maybe you've gotten a box of something that you had to build, maybe a piece of furniture or something in your house, and you open the box and you get out all of the pieces to the box, and you begin to start to put together this thing that was in the box, and an hour or two later, you're looking at the thing you've created, and you're looking at the picture on the box and going, these don't look anything the same, and I have several pieces left over, and I've broken a few of the pieces that I was originally given, and then you find this little piece of paper that says instructions on the top, and think, oh, maybe the easier road would have been just to follow that from the beginning. Maybe you have a project that you're working on and you have several people who come up to you and they say, oh, let me know when you're going to work on that. We'll help you out with that. And you say, ah, oh, nah, I can handle this. And way longer than it should have taken and completely exhausted, you think to yourself, maybe I should have called some of those people who are willing to help. Maybe you found yourself in the midst of a conflict with somebody. And the easiest way to handle conflict is to sit down with the person you have conflict with and to calmly and rationally share how you've been hurt and what the conflict is. And yet so often we respond with passive-aggressive comments and avoidance and only make the situation worse. The gospel, as Paul had presented it to the churches in Galatia, was simple. Is the work of faith in the work of Jesus Christ and it doesn't require that followers of Jesus become adherents of the Jewish law. And for Jews who had grown up following all of the thou shaltses and the thou shalt notses of the Jewish law and all of the customs, listening to what Paul was telling these Gentile churches in Galatia seemed too easy. It felt like Paul was watering things down to somehow win popularity with his audience. But Paul had already written, the churches in Galatia about this. His goal was not to win the approval of any human being other than Jesus Christ. What he shared was the truth of the gospel. It is the grace and peace of God received by faith in Jesus. And as we turn to chapter 3, Paul is going to begin to try to build a rational and theological defense for why he knows this to be true. This isn't Paul's own ideas about God. The gospel itself is God's idea, and it's been his idea all along. In fact, the very law and prophets that the Jewish people paid lip service to pointed to the way that Jesus, painted the way to Jesus, and they found their fulfillment in him. So as Paul told us last week, it was through the law that he died to the law. He invited other followers of Jesus to do the same, that they might live for Jesus, a life no longer your own, but a life of faith that belongs to Jesus as the Messiah. So the question Paul is answering is, how do we know faith is enough? It sounds too easy to say we could be made right with God by grace through faith. How does that make any sense? It's a little bit of a lengthy passage we're going to read this morning, so hang in with us. It starts at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, 
You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish that after beginning by means of the Spirit, you're now trying by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says that the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law was introduced 300 or 430 years later, and it does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So why when was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. If a law could have been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. A little bit of a heady passage, right? So let's kind of break apart a little bit of what Paul is saying. How do we know that faith is enough, that we can just place our faith in Jesus, and this is God's desire to pour out his grace and peace into our lives? And Paul makes the first argument saying that there is evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. In the first five verses, he wants them to understand. He, he writes these Galatian churches, and he basically reminds them of their own story. When I came through Galatia on my missionary travels, I presented to you Jesus Christ crucified. You clearly saw that Jesus died as the penalty for your sins. And when you heard that Jesus had died to make you right with God, and when you received the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit came on you because you trusted in what God did. It wasn't because I came to you and said, hey, Gentiles, here's all of the laws. You need to follow them. I just came and said that Jesus has come from God. He died on the cross for you. And that if you believe in him, you can have connection with God. And you did. You trusted in Jesus and you felt the power of the Holy Spirit come in your life. There is no more powerful, compelling, or convincing evidence of the gospel than the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And Paul says, why would you who have received connection with God, you've had this relationship, you've felt God's goodness, you've felt His grace, you felt your life at peace as if something suddenly made sense with God and you were in peace and shalom and wholeness with your creator. But now because other people are coming and talking to you and telling you all of these rules to follow, are you now, though you've received the Spirit, trying to earn your way to God? Foolish Galatians. You guys are being idiots, he says. Why, after you already have received the Holy Spirit, would you try to earn what God has freely given you? The greatest evidence for the gospel is the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. And that looks different for each one of us, right? It can become tricky to understand what is that exactly. And when we as Christians sometimes try to say, well, this is the evidence of the Spirit, or this is the evidence of the Spirit, so often we get into doctrinal mistakes that are contrary to what Scripture says. It's a lot like true love. When you experience it, you know that you're experiencing it. When you experience the power of the Holy Spirit, you just know that you're experiencing it. And others who have experienced it, they can see you. Just like when they see somebody who's in love, you can look at that person and you can go, they're in love. When you see somebody who's been changed and that the Holy Spirit is in their life, they begin to act different and think different and their old habits begin to be different and transformed. Just as Paul said in Galatians 2, it's like this old person has been crucified with Christ. The life they're living doesn't even belong to them anymore. Somehow it's just evident that God's presence is what is carrying them forward. And Paul says, you can know that the gospel is true because people receive the Holy Spirit as soon as they put their trust in Jesus. They don't need to follow all of the laws and get their life completely perfect and flawless before him. But the Holy Spirit comes into those who give their lives to trusting in Jesus. Next, Paul wants to move on and kind of address those who've heard all of these Jewish teachers talking. And so it says there's not just evidence from the Holy Spirit, but we have evidence from Abraham's life. And in verses 6 through 9, he will begin to show how faith was at work in the chief patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, Abraham did not have any personal responsibility to establish the covenant. Normally, a covenant would be I'll do this if you'll do this. In fact, that's the covenant of the law, right? I will be your God if you will be my people and obey everything I have commanded you in the law. But when it was Abraham's covenant, God says in Genesis 15, all of the things that God is going to do. And Abraham's role in the covenant is simply to believe. Abraham has Nothing to do, no responsibility, only to believe that God who is pouring out grace and peace into his life is going to do what he has said he will do. Abraham believes God, 
And simply by believing and trusting what God says he's going to do, it is credited to him as righteousness. It brings his life back into alignment with God. Abraham is considered right with God, this chosen man that God is going to use, simply because he chooses to trust what God says. He chooses to believe that if God wants to do this, then far be it from me to not believe him. God's plan and his desire has always been to freely give of himself to human beings that he created in his image. And his requirement is that we would have faith in him, that we would love and honor and trust in his promise and his goodness and his power and his presence. As Paul says, even going back to the chief patriarch of the Jews, we can see that God's desire is not to place a heavy burden on his people, his desire is that his people would simply know him, trust him, and love him. And so he says, we who by faith trust in Jesus, who aren't born Jewish, you Gentiles, when you trust in Jesus Christ, become descendants of Abraham. Paul will go on to explain a little bit more of how this theology works, saying that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. In verses 10 to 14, he gets into some kind of deep theology expounding. He says, In Deuteronomy, the law states that anyone who does not follow the law lives under a curse. That when God gave the law, a part of that law said, If you do not follow everything, you are cursed. You are separated from God. You've broken the covenant that God made with his people Israel that he freed from Egypt. But this is not God's desire for his people. The prophet Habakkuk stated, those who would become truly right with God will live by faith. The law in Leviticus says that those who follow the law will have life. They will live. And so the law sets up a system where a person finds life by living in perfection according to the law. And if they fail to do everything in the law, they live under the curse of death and judgment. And so Paul says Jesus became that curse for us by hanging on a cross, as is stated in Deuteronomy. He says there was a covenant that God made that was the law, and the law said if you do everything in here, you will live. And if you do not do everything that is in the law, you will be separated from God and experience death. You were cursed under the law. And so this was the role that Jesus did. As that fulfillment of the law, he became that curse. That law itself stated that anyone who dies on that pole is cursed. And so Jesus said, I will wear the curse. The curse that belongs to you, the curse that was rightfully yours because you could not make every line of the law perfect and flawless in your life, I will become that curse on your behalf so that you don't have to worry about that curse. Not only did Jesus redeem humanity from the curse, but Paul wants them to understand that God's inheritance is based off of his promise and not the law. He continues to explain this in verses 15 through 18. It says that when God originally came to Abraham, God made a covenant promise with Abraham. He said, I want to bless you, and I want to make you a blessing to all nations. A covenant cannot be altered after it has been enacted, unless both parties are present and agree to the alterations. If you make a covenant and say, I will do this if you will do this, you can't then alter that covenant if one of the parties is missing. 
And so this is Paul's argument to the Galatians and to his critics. He says, God came to Abraham and said that he wanted to bless him and he wanted to be his God. This was the, the, the covenant given to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And when God came to Moses, there was a second covenant and Abraham wasn't there. So the first covenant cannot be discarded by the second covenant. But when the law comes, it doesn't do away with the promise. But God's initial promise that came 430 years before the law was given still stands. Paul says it still stands today. The law, he says, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because this is what happened. God made a promise with his people, and then there was this law that was given, and so Jesus has come, and he has become the fulfillment of the law. Paul kind of concludes this section by trying to answer the question that he assumes is on the mind of his readers, and which maybe some of us would ask as well. If righteousness comes by faith, then why was the law necessary in the first place? Paul's answer is to say the law was given because of the transgressions of God's people between the time the promise was given and the time of the seed, Jesus, who was to come. During the 400 years between the Abrahamic covenant and the law of Moses, the climate of faith had dramatically changed. Though Abraham trusted in God, believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, by the time you get to Moses, he frees God's people from Egypt. They walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. They've seen plague after plague attack the gods of Egypt. God has dramatically and miraculously shown his hand again and again and again. And if you remember the story of Exodus, the people again and again say, would it be better to go back to slavery than to follow God's way. And again and again, they show they have no cognitive ability to understand what God desires from them or to act as people of faith. And so they were given the law. And the purpose of the law was to say, if you want to understand what it means to be perfect before God, I will tell you. All I have ever wanted is for you to experience my promise and to trust me and live by faith as Abraham has. But my people are unable to do that. They seem unable to trust me and to have faith. And so I will give them the law. And the law is not opposed to the promise. The law is simply the result of what you have asked for and what your life lacking faith has been like. I will show you what transgression is. I'll make it clear. If you need to know what it means to not be people of faith, here then is the law. The law was given in part to show its own inferiority. If a law could have been given that would have imparted life, then it would have, and Jesus wouldn't have been necessary. But the law plays the role of allowing humanity to see its own sinfulness. It reveals how we fall short of God's standards and it places us in a sort of prison, Paul says, guilty before God and in need of rescue where we are unable to obtain God's presence ourselves. He says the law acts as a guardian, a, a nanny of sorts, if you will. 
This was common imagery, especially for wealthy families living in the first century. They would often hire a nanny, we would call them today, a guardian who would come to the home, and for any of the children, they would be responsible for raising the children. And often the mental image of the nanny was the strict disciplinarian, and any time you didn't measure up to what you were supposed to do and what you were not supposed to do, there was corporal punishment to pay according to her. Paul says the law was that guardian. It allowed us to know exactly what we should do. We weren't able to grab hold of the faith that was given to Abraham and to his seed. And so God gave us the law to act as a guardian, to tell us when we were in line and when we were out of line. But it failed to bring us the grace and peace that God had desired, the promise that was given to Abraham 430 years before the law. And so we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ who fulfills the law perfectly, who becomes the curse for us, who enables us who live by faith to be children of Abraham, not under the guardianship of the law, but recipients of the promise given to Abraham and his singular seed, Jesus Christ, with whom we who are followers of Jesus, we are the recipients of that promise. Faith sometimes seems too easy. And so often we try to win our salvation through meritorious deeds. Or even worse, we try to live up to the expectations that other human beings have, that they place on us, people that we see as religiously superior to ourselves. We try to earn the salvation, the relationship with God that is freely offered in Jesus. Paul says this just did not make any sense. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law who redeems us from its curse so that we might receive God's promise. We see in Abraham that God's desire has always been to extend his goodness, his grace, and his peace to those who would receive it by faith alone. In our lives, the greatest evidence of our faith is not the actions we take or those we avoid, but it is the witness of the Holy Spirit. It is that inward knowing that God's presence is with me in everything that I go through. It's that life that is lived not as my own, that anyone who looks at me says that person's life is just captivated by Jesus. The way they live their life is in faith of God. They don't belong to themselves anymore, but they have changed, they are different, and they are transformed. What if Christians really lived this way? What if the world didn't look at the church and see us as a place of rules, expectations, and repeated hypocritical failure to live up to our own stated standards? But what if they saw us embracing the promise that is freely given by Jesus Christ, living in the grace and peace that comes from a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit's presence. I wonder if our joy and our freedom would be so contagious that nobody could keep the gospel from continuing to spread. Sometimes the hardest thing to accept is what appears at first glance to be the easy way. And so we fight and we struggle and we embrace all kinds of anxiety that were never intended to be ours as we attempt to earn God's grace and peace 
which he freely extends to every human being who would be willing to place their faith and trust in the promise, in Jesus Christ, in the fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of the law, the one who has come to make you new in him. How do we know that God does this? We have the evidence of the Holy Spirit. We have the evidence in Abraham's life who received the initial promise and covenant. And we can see even in the law that Christ redeems us from its curse. The inheritance that he offers us is based off of God's promise and not the law. And that law was completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the joy of the gospel. As we look at this passage, it ought to fill our hearts as followers of Jesus with such a sense of freedom, such a sense of relief, such a sense of release, such a sense of joy. God, I pray that you would be with your followers today, those who trust you. Help us to know that you love us because you created us and you promised us that you wanted to be ours. Help us to see that we cannot earn you. We can't earn your favor. We can't lose it. All we can do is realize that in Jesus, the curse was taken care of. That because Jesus hung on that tree and gave his life, we don't have to earn our way to God. We never could anyways. But we have in him the ability to become children of Abraham, to trust in the promise once again, to experience and to live in the grace and peace that is offered to us by our good God. God, help us to walk in that freedom, that lightness. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light, Jesus. Help us to share that joy and that freedom with those around us to love freely even as Jesus loved. God, may your kingdom come in us. May your will be done in us as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We again want to remind you, you can give on the exits or give online, and we thank you for your faithfulness in giving. And we want to remind you to come back next week. It's going to be a wonderful week uh, with Pastor John Bray. We're really looking forward to uh, the message that God brings with him. We hope that you have a great week. Go with God. God bless.